Jesus told his disciples that he must leave, that another may come. And so the necessity of the role of this person cannot be overemphasized. It was necessary that Jesus would leave so that the ministry of this person would take place. In Jesus' absence, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells every believer. There is a lot of confusion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I would encourage you that when you hear things about the Holy Spirit, whether it's something that you're suspicious of or not, if you're not certain, look to the Word of God. Look to the Word of God in two ways. One, look to the Word of God for prescribed theology. In other words, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? And then go beyond that and look at the progression over time. In some eras, things are different than others. The sacrificial system was for an era. We're no longer in that era. The sign gifts, not all of the gifts, but the sign gifts were for an era, not every era. They certainly not, were not existent prior to the era in which they operated, and they certainly do not operate today. But many people want to say that they do. We often are accused of believing and teaching that the Holy Spirit is no longer operative, and that's completely untrue. We believe that the Holy Spirit is fully operative today, as he always has been, no less, no more, completely operative in the life of the believer, but also in the life of the unbeliever. John has told us that the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. That is upon the unbeliever. He doesn't indwell the unbeliever. He doesn't rest on the unbeliever, but he brings conviction of those things. Therefore, every unbeliever as a result of the work of the Spirit of God, is without excuse. He knows that his sin is sin. He knows there is a judgment to come because of his sin. And he knows that righteousness exists and it doesn't dwell within him because he has no interest in it. By the way, that is one of the measures by which a person can know that he's a believer, according to the Apostle John. First John 3, we're told that it's obvious who the believer is and who the believer is not. The believer, the child of God, has a love for the brethren and a love for righteousness. He, he longs for those things. He doesn't exhibit them perfectly, but he has a deep, deep love for Christians. And so he acts on that. But he also has a deep, deep love for righteousness. He wants to do what's right, even though there are times where he wants to do what's wrong, kind of like the Apostle Paul. Why do I not do what I want to do, Paul said. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And so he lives with that dilemma, but the overarching reality comes from the fact that he has a new nature that instills in him a love for righteousness and a love for the brethren. Well, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Many, many things are being attributed today to the Holy Spirit that are not of the Holy Spirit. And it's easy for us to pick on the charismatics, but you and I must be careful ourselves that we don't say, you know, the Holy Spirit did this the other day. You know, the Holy Spirit moved on my heart to do this the other day. It may be true, but be careful. The best test, really the singular, exclusive, and always accurate test is the Word of God. You see it prescribed in Scripture, and if you see it, continuing in Scripture. What you don't see continuing in Scripture with regard to the Holy Spirit is the sign gifts. 
The gift of tongues ceased. The Bible said it would, 1 Corinthians 13, and it did. I love Al Mohler saying, the reason I believe that the sign gift ceased is because the sign gift ceased. And some would say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible records that they ceased. There's only two books in which the sign gifts are even spoken of. And thereafter, throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's clear they, they don't exist anymore. You don't see any expression of them. Not to mention nearly all of the church fathers in the first through third centuries concluded that they ceased. Think of it, the first through third centuries, those centuries in closest proximity. In fact, one of them being the century in which Jesus walked the earth and the Holy Spirit expressed himself through those sign gifts. The church fathers all concluded that those gifts ceased. And so, so much confusion about the Holy Spirit is often the result of a superficial approach to the Bible. Well, here it is in the Bible, therefore it must be true. It took place at one time, therefore it must be taking place today. That's not how it works. That's, in a sense, what makes us dispensationalists. There's more to it than that. We believe in the covenants of the Bible. We believe that God operates based on covenants. But we also believe that despite the fact that those covenants are important to him and should be important to us, there are things that change over time. God doesn't change. But God utilizes his word in different eras in specifically designed ways that best and most glorify him per his design. And that's his prerogative. He can do that person who claims that he speaks in tongues today needs to grapple with the reality that what tongues was in the Bible was actually speaking a known language. It was never, listen to this, it was never gibberish. This is why there was an interpreter. There was someone to interpret the language that they knew. Now what you hear is just, it's, well, it's not unfair to say that it's nonsense And in so many charismatic churches, they actually teach children to speak this nonsense. I can do a little of it myself. Would you like to hear it? (laughs) Bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha. So when you go to the car dealership, you know, (laughs) bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha. I knew you'd catch it. It's nonsense. In fact, what I just said in a joking manner has more sense to it than what they're actually doing. You know, maybe you do feel like you should have bought a Yamaha instead of a Honda, and you can say, that makes sense. But the person who just utters this nonsense and wants to believe that it is a higher language uh, is really walking a very, very dangerous line. And I would say this. It's one of two things. It's either fake or it's demonic. And I really, really mean that. Why? Because it's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord. Now, does that mean that the person who is supposedly or, or wants you to think he's speaking his tongues has a demon? No, I didn't say that. Does that mean that he's completely disingenuous? No, I don't mean that either. I'm simply saying for the person that thinks he's speaking in tongues, he may be completely sincere. He may really or she may really believe that this is the gift of tongues in the Bible. But what he or she must do is assess that per Scripture. It was never nonsense. It was always a known language that a person who knew that language would then interpret. And that's not what you see going on in these charismatic churches today. 
So that's really kind of introductory, just for the purpose of saying that we're going to look at what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit and His work. We're not going to cover it all by any means. There's so much, and as I prepared this lesson, many of you know this is what I taught at the children's camp this last week. There's so much that I wanted to cover and couldn't, so I really distilled this down just from this one passage so that you and I would see really a couple of things here. One, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, and two, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And you could really, you could really say that, that that is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit because sanctification begins with regeneration. Sanctification encompasses uh, regeneration. So when we talk about spiritual growth, we're talking about that which begins with spiritual birth. That's how you ought to think of sanctification. Don't think of them as two different things. One is the beginning of the other. And the other is the whole of the one. In other words, sanctification starts with regeneration. Spiritual growth starts with spiritual birth. That's something that you already understand, I'm sure. Well, this morning we'll see the earthly and eternal results of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the earthly and eternal results of the absence of the Holy Spirit so that we may obey the Holy Spirit and help others do the same. Anytime you're sitting under sound teaching of Scripture, there should be two general goals for you. One is your own spiritual growth, your delight in the glory of Christ, but also your increasing ability to nurture that in others, right? Whether they be believers or unbelievers. If they're believers, then you're saying to them, hey, here's what Scripture says, let's respond. If we're talking about unbelievers, we're saying, hey, here's what Scripture says. I know this doesn't make sense, but I'd like to be here for you when it does. You wouldn't say it like that, but that's the idea. You want to minister to those who know Christ. You want to minister to those who don't know Christ. But that starts with your own willingness and ability to be changed by what the Bible calls sanctification. It's a work of God that requires maximum effort on your part. Does that help? You're obeying Scripture by reading it, uh, sitting under sound teaching, engaging in fellowship, being counseled, counseling others, subjecting yourself to what God has said in his word so that you would be changed, so that you would be involved in helping other people change. And not just change for change's sake, but change for the glory of Christ and the common good of the body of Christ. Well, to this end, to the end that you see there in your what we call your so that statement or your thesis statement, to the end that you would be changed by the Holy Spirit and help others be changed by the Holy Spirit. Point number one, we're going to look at what I've called here Holy Spirit instruction. And that's not anything difficult at all. What we're simply talking about here is the fact that you see this instruction in Scripture. And I like the title of the point being Holy Spirit instruction because it separates that from what you might call psychological instruction or manipulative instruction uh, or worldly instruction or even religious instruction. It's different from that. Holy Spirit instruction. And I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you some insight into where we're headed with this. I'm talking about instruction that's given to those who have the Holy Spirit. And instruction that's extremely frustrating for those who don't have the Holy Spirit but play themselves off, whether deceptively or deceived themselves as Christians, right? They think they're Christians, but they're not. Or they know they're not Christians, but they want others to think that they are. That's what I'm talking about. That's non-Holy Spirit instruction in terms of what we're talking about this morning. So 
Point number one, Holy Spirit instruction is given to those for whom this is a reminder. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You know, we had a law enforcement appreciation day back in October. I was talking about those moments in my life where I was not appreciative of law enforcement. And that's changed drastically for me. I realize these are people that not only have determined to give their lives for our protection, but they are ministers of God. And so when you or I respond disrespectfully to any authority, any authority, not just police officers, but any authority, we are responding disrespectfully to God. We are saying, God, you don't get it. You know, this guy's a crook. He's supposed to be you know, helpful and he's not or whatever. You, you, don't, you and I don't have that privilege. It's not to say that that person shouldn't be exposed if he is in fact dishonest or corrupt. But the point is, God has established that authority. He says, remind them to be submissive <laughs> to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Ten times, ten times, Paul talks to Titus about good works. You know, if you're in Christ, your life is about good works. You're committed to good works. It's going to look different for every Christian. But you love doing good works, not just for the sake of doing good works, and certainly not for the sake of being able to say after you've done it, you know, I just feel better about myself. It's all done out of pride. I just want to feel better about myself. No, 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 no. I want to serve because Christ is good. He loves me. He loves the body. I want to see people grow. That's the idea. I want to see people exalt Christ. That's the idea. So he says, you need to remind them to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. So my... Uh, instruction per Paul's instruction to Titus is to remind you to speak evil of no one. And I think along with that, it might not be a bad idea for you and I to do an inventory of whether or not we've done that recently. It's often done in a manipulative manner, you know, jokingly. You know, maybe someone has challenged you, maybe someone has instructed you, maybe someone has attempted to help you realize that it seems like there's sin in your life and you mock that. Well, be careful what you do around that guy because he might, you know, call you out on it. It's mockery and it's speaking evil of that person. You know, a good rule of thumb for this is Ephesians 4.29 to only say that which is edifying. It's not to say that you don't address sin, you don't address evil, but the point is you do it with the common good of the body in mind. You're not trying to disparage someone or cause others to think less or poorly of that person, but you're doing what you're doing for the sake not only of that person, but the common good of the whole body. That's a great rule of thumb for that. He says to avoid quarreling. (laughs) When I was in college... My uh, defensive coordinator, he's a football coach, I just loved this guy. He was so helpful to me. He really coached me in such a way that caused me to rise above my ability. And I loved him for that. Um, He was a good man. 
But I remember one time during practice, he had said something to me, and I responded, and he said, well, there goes Barnett the debater. And I realized I had become known to him as someone who doesn't respond well to his instruction. And that was a horrible thought to me because he was so valuable in my life. But in his mind, I wasn't listening to him. So from that, that was my freshman year. From that day forward for the next three years, I never, ever spoke out again, not one time, under his instruction, even when he was wrong. And one time he was very wrong, and everybody on the team knew it, and I kept my mouth shut. And several minutes later, he realized he was wrong. Now, he didn't apologize to me, but I didn't need that. What I needed was for him to know that I really, really valued his input because I needed it. I needed it so much. Well, Paul's telling Titus to remind the believers whom he pastors to avoid quarreling. You know, the proverb says, abandon the quarrel. As soon as it starts to become a bickering event, stop. Some would say, yeah, just walk out of the room. Well, be careful how you walk out of the room. Walking out of the room is not always the solution. Sometimes, and maybe many times, it's part of the solution. But, you know, you could just be saying, fine, forget it. Or you could be saying, you know, I love you so much, I'm going to go away until I become a Christian again. You know, that was, that was a joke, by the way. You can't. You can't become not a Christian and then a Christian again. But you know what I mean? You're acting like you're not a believer and you know it. And so you say, look, I'm going I'm to walk away, not because I'm angry, not because I'm right and you're wrong, although that may be the case. You know, you don't want to say that. I'm going to walk away and trust the Lord to make my heart right, avoid quarreling. He says we're to remind them to be gentle, remind them to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Wow, that's a tall standard. Perfect courtesy toward Christians. No. What does it say? Perfect courtesy toward who? All people. Yeah, even that guy who did that really horrible thing uh, this last week, and you've never met him, and you'll never see him again. You're supposed to show perfect courtesy toward that guy. And by the way, perfect here means complete or mature. So don't think that this is such a high standard that you can't do it. It means be gentle. So that the courtesy that you show others is a manifested courtesy. Do that with all people. By the way, if you want a definition of what it is to walk by the Holy Spirit, here it is. Some folks, maybe even in our circles, have made the idea of walking by the Holy Spirit this mystical issue. It's not. It's simply to obey what the Spirit has said in His Word, not in your dream, not in your Bible study time, not in your quiet time. That's not what it is to obey the Holy Spirit or to walk by the Holy Spirit. It's to obey the Spirit of God per his instructions in his word. Well, point number two, I want you to see Holy Spirit absence. And you can see this this way. You can see what's going on here is that there are instructions given to those who have the Holy Spirit And what Paul does then is he goes back and he says, oh yeah, by the way, remember when you and I didn't have the Holy Spirit? He says, for we ourselves once were foolish, disobedient. He's saying, Titus, remind believers in your church to be obedient. But Titus, remember when you and I were disobedient? There's a drastic distinction between what it means to have the Holy Spirit and what it means to not have the Holy Spirit. Say it this way. There's a drastic distinction between what it means to be a believer and what it means to be an unbeliever. 
But the evangelical church has so intentionally blurred the lines with this phrase, well, whether or not he knows the Lord is between him and the Lord. And that's just absolutely, completely untrue. And it's a hateful thing to say. It's a hateful thing to believe about someone. When you see someone who's exhibiting an absence of the Holy Spirit, and instead of loving him enough to address your concerns about him and to acknowledge that your concerns might be wrong, but you love him or her enough to address it, Instead of doing that, the person says, well, you know, that's up to the Lord. It's completely unloving. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Led astray by what? By false doctrine, by false teaching. Well, let's see what this guy has to say about this. Rather than clinging to those that you know to be sound. He's willing to play around. Listen to certain theologians who seem to be having an impact rather than trusting those that you know are safe, godly. By the way, when a dead theologian speaks, you don't have to worry about him changing his mind. You know, John Calvin's theology is not going to change. Now, granted, it changed when he got to heaven because he was wrong about some things. But in terms of what he has communicated, you don't have to worry about him changing his mind. What is written is written. Be careful of the person. And this is happening. This is happening in a bizarre way. Ravi Zacharias used to be solid as a rock. He's not. He's hooked up with TBN false teachers. He resoundingly affirms Joyce Meyer, who's clearly a heretic. Who else? Uh, David Jeremiah, also now connected to the Crouch family. Who would have ever guessed David Jeremiah would go off the rails? You've got to be careful. There are certain theologians that we look at and we say, okay, we don't agree with everything they say, but at least they're not abandoning the gospel. The TBN gospel is a false gospel. When Ravi Zacharias and David Jeremiah hook up with false gospel teachers, you've got to wonder what in the world's going on. It's critical that we acknowledge that there are those who are absent of the Holy Spirit and they are therefore led astray. They are slaves to various passions. You know, this is the guy who just gets angry. You know, he can't be instructed or he's so committed to sexual immorality that he won't confess it or expose it. See that? He's, um, he's enslaved to his passion for telling lies. He won't be instructed. He won't be corrected. He won't surround himself with people who would correct him. He's enslaved to various pleasures. Paul says, uh, he's talking about himself. This used to be who he was. He says, we were passing our days. This simply means spending our time in malice. Malice. What's malice? Malice is an attitude driven by hatred, the marination of ill will toward others. Resting in that, thinking about it, you know, building on it. Doesn't necessarily mean uh, for that person that he's planning evil, but he's thinking about it. He wouldn't mind at all if uh, certain persons were to be harmed. And envy, we were envious. You know what that means. Uh, we, we longed, we coveted for what others had, their position, their money, their relationships. 
And then this, this is kind of a couple of bookends right at the end, displaying the manifestation of malice in a person's life. We were hated by others and hating one another. That is indicative of the person who does not have the Holy Spirit. Well, number three, point number three, I want you to see Holy Spirit regeneration. And so, again, what we're looking at here is the distinction between the earthly and eternal results of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the earthly eternal results of the absence of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at Holy Spirit instruction, which the one with the Holy Spirit can and does receive. We've looked at Holy Spirit absence, which is the undergirding reality for the person who rejects the teaching of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want it. He rejects it. He might pretend he wants it, but he refuses to put himself in any context where he might have any kind of accountability for that. So point number three is the root of the change. It's the gateway into moving from being a person who is absent of the Holy Spirit and now being a person who is present with the Holy Spirit or in whom the Holy Spirit is present. Paul says in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. See that? It's quite simple. Salvation's a work of God. And so Paul has pointed, Titus, remember when we were disobedient? Remember when we were malicious? We were envious? We were haters of other people? They hated us. We hated them. We hated each other. Remember that, Titus? But what happened? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This phrase alone should cause every Roman Catholic to say, man, have I gotten it completely wrong. Because Roman Catholicism, salvation in the Roman Catholic system is completely rooted in the work of Christ and the work of the one who would have salvation. We call that synergism. It's a synergistic effort. Jesus does some things, the person does some things, and the result is God saves him. It's Roman Catholicism at its core, such that in 1545, at the close of the Council of Trent, those who declared really what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, that salvation is by grace, through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. The Council of Trent says the person who declares that is accursed. So this is at the core where we are different, where we are distinct from Roman Catholic theology. He goes on to say, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's a word picture for you. The washing of regeneration. As a kid, I became a painter. I did a lot of painting for a living as a young man. And um, my first job, I think I mentioned this last week or the week before, my first job right out of college was working on radio and television towers. And um, I really enjoyed being outside, and, and all I wore was a pair of cutoffs and boots because I could back then. Um, that would be a sin now. But I would climb these towers uh, with 
paint cans attached to my hip. And then, you know, you secure them, and then you get to the top of the tower, and you, you work your way down. You run out of paint, and there's another can of paint. You know, you don't have to go down and get it. At one point, we were painting a tower that required some prep work. This was all new to me. I didn't know how this worked. But they said, so what you'll do is you'll take this wire brush, and you'll brush the rust spots, and you'll put some lead-based primer on, the, uh, on that spot. I said, okay, no problem. So I've got the lead-based primer in a, you know, a gallon bucket attached to my hip, and I'm dipping the, we used a, a wash mitt like you'd wash your car with. We'd dip it down in there and rub it all over. And so I'm putting this lead-based primer all over the tower and all over my leg. And it's one thing to remove water-based paint. It's another thing to, to remove lead-based primer. So I, I'm done that day, and I, you know, and I didn't care. I thought, I'll just go wash it off. After trying baby oil, Vaseline, um, that orange stuff you buy at the mechanic place, uh, the auto parts store, I can't remember the name of it, uh, I finally resorted to gasoline. Uh, I don't remember what eventually got it off, but it was frustrating to want to be washed, to want that off my leg and to be unable to do it. And that is the reality of the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit and wants to be sanctified. He's trying, trying, trying to obey these instructions, uh, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He doesn't want to do that. He's unable to be washed. He wants to be obedient, sort of. Why? Well, for the outcome, certainly not for any internal reality, any internal good, uh, to be ready for every good work. You know, he hates doing things for other people unless he gets something from it. Stop speaking evil of others. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy to all people. No, 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 he can't do that. He wants to do those things because it makes him look better, and maybe he restrains himself from time to time so that he will do that and gain favor with others, but he's not washed. He's simply on better behavior. Paul says, um, but according to his own mercy, see that? It's a work of God. The person who is doing this by his own efforts, trying to wash himself, he's very frustrated in that he's not being changed. And over the course of time, people are realizing he's not being changed. And he gets very, very frustrated with the kind of teaching that exposes the problem. Until, you know, the point at which the Spirit of God does do this work and then he sits back and says, how on earth did I miss this? And the truth is he didn't miss it. The truth is he was just deceptive about it. He rejected the truth time and time and time again. He knew he was unable to change. Paul's saying about himself, this is who I was, but then this is what God did. I stopped trying to wash myself. Why? Because God began the washing process. And so what I did as a result is I obeyed his word. The one who obeys his word, God washes according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. That's an initial washing. It's an initial cleansing that requires renewal. That's why he says washing and renewal. There's the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now listen, this is another distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit is pulled out richly, not sparsely. You know, not in tidbits. Here's a little bit of the Holy Spirit. I'll see what you can do with that. No, he's poured out with fullness 
So there's massive conviction over sin. There's massive encouragement to do good works. There's massive encouragement to be involved in evangelism. There's massive encouragement to want to be exposed for one's own sin and actually be changed. He poured out on us richly. How? How'd this work? This is the beauty of the simplicity of what you tell the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever could be hearing this message saying, i got to get the Holy Spirit. How do I get the Holy Spirit? Clearly, I, I don't have the Holy Spirit, but I need the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a dead-end road. In fact, that's a non-road. There is no road for the unbeliever to get to the Holy Spirit. There's no instruction for him to obey the Holy Spirit, to trust the Holy Spirit, to know the Holy Spirit, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But this is how it worked. Paul looks back on it with a theological reality and says, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You want the Holy Spirit? You need Jesus. Now I got something to work with as an unbeliever because I know that Jesus existed. I know he was resurrected. I know that he died. I know that he lived. Jesus is a real person who walked to the earth, was killed, and was resurrected. And he's had massive impact on people's lives. No character throughout history has had more attention than Jesus. There's nobody who doesn't know about the person of Jesus. When you're involved in helping others grow in their spiritual condition, what you do is you tell them about Jesus. And many times what you do when you tell them about Jesus is you're telling them what Jesus has done in your life. So I look around the room. For so many of you, most of you, I can say, wow, the work the Lord's done in you and me in the time that we've known each other. If we can't say that, wow. Think about going to those who know you best in, a, in the right timing and say, look, which could be any time, <laughs> and say to them, would you tell me what you think of my growth? You know, you've known me for five years. Do you see growth? Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm going to tell you, some of you need to be prepared to hear, no, absolutely not. I don't see an ounce of it. So don't just go to one person. And, and don't go to your mom, okay? Go to somebody who's really, really in the position to help you. Because they're going to be objective. They are objective. See, this is uh, Holy Spirit regeneration, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ as our Savior. The real fundamental issue here is that the Holy Spirit being poured out through Jesus Christ is that the Holy Spirit comes to those who have Jesus Christ. But if you want to have the Holy Spirit, if a person wants to have the Holy Spirit, his role is not to go after the Holy Spirit. His role is to go after Jesus, to understand the person and work of Jesus. Verse 7, here's a so that statement. Don't you love this? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You've said it. You've heard it. You've probably uh, wondered the value of it. But this phrase, if you were to die tonight and the Lord said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The purpose for that question is to draw one's attention to the reality that there is an afterlife. There's nothing wrong with attempting to talk to someone about their soul in light of the fact that it is not going to cease to exist, despite what our Seventh-day Adventist friends want to believe. Everyone lives forever, either in bliss or in immeasurable suffering. 
And the judgment comes as a result of what one does with Christ. But again, the so that, beginning with verse 7, is that being justified by his grace. He's already pointed out, not by works, but by his grace. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of this work of Christ in the body and calls husbands to do that work in their wives. I had the great privilege yesterday to look Alex in the eye, which for me means standing on this stage while he's standing on the floor, and say, Alex, brother, friend, brand new Christian, physical giant, spiritual baby, Alex, my brother, wash Myra with the water of the word. Not with a wire brush, but with gentleness. And with a changed life yourself. Be with Christ and his word before you would attempt to bring anything to bear upon your wife's heart. Oh, this is the gentle work of the Holy Spirit via the person of Christ. That we would see who he is, see his gentleness. You know, as you look back on your life, your involvement in people's lives, the moments in which the Lord has had the greatest impact on others are those moments when you have been wisest and most gracious. There are times where a sharp rebuke is necessary, but many times that's the end of the trail. Many times that's the fourth step of church discipline, and it's still done in love, but a sharp rebuke simply means you're drawing clear attention to the black and white reality of what Scripture says about what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and what it means to not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A sharp rebuke doesn't mean that you, you beat someone over the head, but this gentle washing with the water of the word is displayed in the person of Christ. Men, you and I have the great privilege to do that, and when we, when we fail, uh, then the sad reality, but the great benefit for our wives is that they then realize, you know, really Christ is the only one that I can ultimately trust. Doesn't mean that she can't trust you. If you're in Christ and you're being faithful to Christ, you're walking by the Holy Spirit, she can trust you, but not with perfection. What you want to do is go back and acknowledge the distinction. Christ's washing of my wife with the water of the word is perfect and mine is not, and there is a difference. So when I acknowledge where I've failed, I'm simply pointing her to Christ, and therefore I am engaging in the washing of her with the water of the word. In John 3, Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, helps us to see how this is initiated. We call this rebirth. Jesus says you must be born again, illustrated with birth, illustrated with wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I mean, you can't look back and say, you know, I captured the wind. 
brought it to myself. I know where it comes from, and I know where it's going. No, you can't say that. And so therefore, the Lord gets the credit. You can say this is a work of God. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He doesn't say, no, I lay a new spirit at your doorstep and I provide an opportunity for you to open up the door and to take it, or it's like a Christmas gift and you open it up. He says, I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will do that. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In verse 8 in our text, Paul goes on to say, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And at the very least, you can look back on unprofitable and worthless discussion and say, hey, there was no profit in that, and it was worthless. And often, a discussion like that begins focused on some legitimate, important theological issue as it is either displayed in someone's life or not displayed in someone's life, or perhaps there is a disobedience or a rejection of that theological issue displayed in a person's life, and that person then creates a diversion, a smokescreen. And he wants to talk about other theological issues. Well, what about this? Rather than dealing with the issue, Paul says, these are unprofitable, quarrels about the law. And I believe this is uh, reminiscent of Paul's words in Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, 12, Paul refers to efforts of the Judaizers, and he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so in Paul's day, there were those who were attempting to bring about a legalistic requirement upon those under their care so that they could say, hey, that's a notch on my six-shooter. That's a result of my ministerial efforts. And Paul says, avoid them. This discussion is without profit. It's, it's worthless. Today, there will be those who will attempt to bring a yoke of slavery upon you by saying, do these things and don't do these things. And there is a clear line between that person and the person who says, hey, I wonder if these things might not be profitable for your spiritual growth. And I wonder if these things would be profitable for your spiritual growth. Some things are obvious and some things aren't. But the legalistic person is the one who wants you to be exactly as they are. They want you to follow all the same rules. You, know, you have personal convictions. They want to apply those personal convictions to you. Paul says so often those who are engaged in quarreling, engaged in genealogies, nothing wrong with searching out your genealogy, but the point was for Israelites, often they would lean on their genealogy, right? They would indicate that they were in the Lord because of Abraham. Well, Jesus destroys that. We're going to see that in a magnificent way in the book of John. But those who are willing to argue about these things clearly do not have the Holy Spirit. 
he says, um, avoid foolish controversies. Avoid them. Well, point number four, I want you to see Holy Spirit condemnation. Holy Spirit condemnation. Paul says here, for as a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Division is faction. Uh, Your NAS, I believe, says avoid the factious man. Warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing more to do with him. Um, Paul here is speaking of the person who, as he says, you can see it in your text, he produces division. Now, all of us from time to time are divisive. Anytime you sin, you're being divisive. But the idea is that he is effective. He's effective in producing division. A moment ago, I was reading from 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And he says, avoid such people. There are plenty of folks who will get involved in the church, get involved in the activities, the practices of the church, the things that they enjoy. But you know, in the underbelly of their relationships with people who they believe uh, it's safe to do so, they will produce division. That's their M.O. He says um, they're perverted. He says knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, they're perverted. A couple years ago, right before we moved in, to this building and starting use it, started using it. Just a handful of weeks, maybe just days, I walked in here and that white trim that runs above the, the shorter walls, as I was looking at it, I thought, my word, it's warped. And knowing the guy who was responsible for putting that trim up, I thought, well, that's not, that's not him at all. I mean, he's so committed to precision and everything being exactly right. And I thought, oh, whatever, you know, building's great. We're going to get in soon. It's, it's wonderful. And it was uh, a couple months later, I, I walked in, I thought, that just doesn't, it's so weird that that would happen, you know, so committed to excellence in every way. And, and then I went into my office, and I, I was looking at the bookshelf, one of my bookshelves, and what should have been a straight line was warped, kind of exactly like this was. And I came in here, and I, I looked at it with, with each eye individually. <laughs> and I realized it was my eye. And so I went to see the doctor. And it turns out I have what's called a branch retinal edema. And my eye fills with fluid. It's really bloody water. And it fills and it causes my eye to be misshapen and it distorts my ability to see rightly. And so for the most part, when I look at things like that, there's not a straight line. There's a straight line with two ripples in it. It's very consistent. And so, and this really doesn't add anything to illustration, but I kind of have to tell you, you know, what do you, what, do you do, what do you do about that, Todd? Well, I get an injection in my eye once a month. Isn't that great? So when, when I say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, it means something. But this person who is unwilling to be committed to the unity of the body is actually committed to division, and that's what he's like in his disposition. He can't get things right. Now, for me, actually, the first time I noticed something, I was driving down the road, and I, you know, the street sign was very blurry, looked like an amoeba. I didn't see the connection between these two things, 
but it prevented me from being able to drive as I normally would. That's the person who's committed to division. It's not just that he's got this secondary issue in his life and he's kind of committed to causing problems. He is a problem because his mind is warped. It's crooked. It's bent. Paul says, you know, warn the guy once, twice. This doesn't mean you or I search out everybody who is saying divisive things and we deal with it and we say, hey, I'm warning you first time and then I'm going to come back with a second time and then I'm going to never talk to you again. That's hate. That's just hatred. And you can't do that in the body. The point is that the body collectively would acknowledge the production of a legitimate division. Now, in our church, God's protected us greatly. We've never had to do this. Not one time. Not in a collective way. There's been one man who was extensively involved in our church. We confronted him with his division. We recommended he go to a different church. And that situation has not yet been resolved. But otherwise, anytime someone has seemingly come to us with the effort to produce division, God has squashed it. And I'm convinced it's the result of having faithful shepherds who love the flock. So it's not only shepherds who are dealing with potential division, it's you. You're willing to point out false doctrine, and you're willing to graciously and lovingly say, hey, that looks to me like a pattern of sin in your life. None of us have ever done that perfectly, but our church is really saturated with that mindset. Why? For the glory of Christ and for the good of the body, the common good of the body, which so often and maybe most often includes the person that we feel we lovingly need to address. God's protected us. Well, when we talk about Holy Spirit condemnation, I want to make sure that you understand here that we're not talking about the Holy Spirit condemning someone. What we're talking about here is the Holy Spirit's definition of condemnation. Paul goes on here to say that he is self-condemned. That's the Holy Spirit's definition of condemnation. It's self-inflicted. The person who doesn't know Christ, the person who does not have the Holy Spirit, does not have Christ, and does not have the Holy Spirit because he has rejected them. It is his fault. And you say, how in the world does that jive with everything I've ever heard you say about the doctrine of election? It's what the Bible teaches. So I'm off the hook. But I'm happy to tell you that both are true. When God saves someone, God gets the credit. When someone's not saved, they get the credit. What do we do with that? I say, rest in God's sovereignty and work passionately regarding man's responsibility. Tell people the truth. Tell them. If you are without the Holy Spirit, it's because you've rejected Christ. Tell them they need Christ. Tell them to embrace Christ. Tell them about how Christ has changed your life. He is self-condemned. How about this, though, in Romans 8, 1? Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what you want. You want people who show themselves to be condemned to no longer be condemned. How do I get the Holy Spirit? Someone might ask you if you've explained to them the work of the Holy Spirit, this washing of regeneration and renewal that is the work of the Holy Spirit, that you can look at people in your life, you can look at people in your local church and say, these are folks who are growing. They're putting off sin. They're putting on Christ. There's a notable, measurable, 
growth in their lives. And the person you're talking to says, wow, I, I, okay, never, I've never seen that. Okay, I, I guess I see it in the Bible, but I've never seen it in practice. What do you say to this person who says to you, how do I get the Holy Spirit? You tell him to repent and believe in the gospel. He's got no problem with awareness of his sin. He's the one who's there every time it gets committed. So reminding him rightly, gently, lovingly that he's a sinner, at the very least, is something that the Lord's going to use to prick his conscience. Tell him to repent and believe the gospel. But tell him this. Tell him that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But tell him that John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Tell him that. Tell him, well, you're condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save. Tell him what John 3.18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Tell them that. Tell them, you know, your problem is you love darkness. You don't love light. You need the light. You need Christ. Tell them what verse 20 says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You're hiding your sin. You know you're a sinner, but you hide it rather than uncover it. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Which is so much of what Paul is speaking to us about here in the book of Titus. About good works. Good works. The person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit does good works with a heart attitude of love for God and love for people. The one who rejects Christ doesn't want to do good works and anything he does is done with external compulsion and with a bad attitude. But he might walk away saying, I feel better about myself now. I'm glad I did that. Far better if he could say that this is the work that comes as a direct result of Holy Spirit regeneration. And I see Holy Spirit instruction, and I see it, and I think, yeah, I need to do that. And I want to do that so that others I know who are currently under condemnation won't be, because I love them. Father, we rejoice in Holy Spirit regeneration. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us hearts that are driven by your grace and your kindness to us. We ask that you'd give us hearts that are driven by instruction from your word. Not that we might look back and say, look what we did, but that we would be able to look back and say, look what you've done, and we long for you to continue to do it on an even more massive level. That you would use our good works for your glory, 
for the equipping of the saints and for the salvation of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.